Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to uh, another episode of the Stack String Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Daniel DeBrock. And uh, today we've got a special guest, Chad Wesley Smith. So first off, Chad, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's it's great to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you give uh, just a brief introduction of, uh, of who you are and a little bit about your background, just for people who maybe aren't familiar with, uh, with your work? Yeah, so as an athlete... Um, Started off college shot putter, uh, two-time national champion in the NAIA. Threw the shot puts 1942 in college, uh, 63 feet 10 inches, and then 20.00 meters, 65 feet 7 inches as a post-collegiate. Um, did my last track meet in May 2010, uh, and then my first powerlifting meet in October 2010. In powerlifting, I uh, finished by totaling 2325, 1055 kilos in wraps in the super heavyweight category. Uh, best lifts of a 970, 440 kilo squat, 257 and a half kilo, 567 pound bench, and 370 kilo, 815 pound deadlift. Also, was a 2012 north american strongman champion uh so earned my pro status in strongman um and then on the other side of things as a coach and and business person founded juggernaut train systems in 2009 as a sport performance coaching facility here in orange county california um have coached on the sport performance side which is really my my real background uh professional mma fighters nfl players Olympians for shot put, hammer throw, bobsled, consulted for track and field teams, uh, collegiate and international track and field teams for sprinters and throwers, um, all kind of athletes, volleyball players, soccer, swimming, basketball, everything. Uh, but probably most noted as a powerlifting coach, a coach two 1,000 pound raw with wrapped squatters, um, maybe. Personally, like one-on-one coaching, like seven or eight, uh, eight hundred pound plus squatters, eight hundred pound plus deadlifters. Um, you know, written books like co-authored Scientific Principles of Strength Training, wrote Powerlifting Program Design Manual, Juggernaut Method, um, and then you know developed not the coding side but the the coaching logic side, the Juggernaut AI app, which has had you know right now about ten thousand uh, active users. Uh, everyone from beginners all the way to you know multiple 800 plus pounds squatters and deadlifters and that as well awesome and so actually it's funny because like a lot of the times when people ask me about uh, like some good primer books for for getting into strength training and stuff like that those are two of the top ones that i recommend i'm like read this one the scientific principles of strength training and then powerlifting program manual because i feel like that's like pretty they, they do a really good job at, at covering a lot of the fundamentals, like from basic level, even honestly to advanced, like a lot of that stuff, like I still use with a lot of my higher level athletes as well. Like it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty solid work. So Thank if you, you guys check that out, um, definitely make sure you go get them and they're very inexpensive from, from what I remember anyways. Yeah. You know, especially with scientific principles, like and that's something we try and do and everything is it's, it's principle based information. So it's, it's not for, beginner intermediate or advanced because those principles apply yeah. regardless it's just 
understanding the context of specificity and individual differences and how to apply them. And that's really what you know the majority of our work now with like Juggernaut AI and stuff is based upon to help people get out of the idea that uh, this is a beginner program and an intermediate program or an advanced program because all the programs are going to be should be utilizing the principles uh, just the kind of the magnitude or dosage of of the different aspects or what changes based on uh, those individual differences like experience among the among others no absolutely and um, I mean I know you're most you're, you're you're definitely mostly known as like a powerlifting coach or strength coach but uh, I know a large uh, portion of your athletes as you kind of mentioned are you know not in the the strength world necessarily and so one of the things that I've always noticed is that um, there are things that sort of permeate like strength uh, strength based sports that will come off as like oh this is this new thing and it's like no I mean athletes have been using this for like for forever in in like track and field and stuff like that so like velocity is one that probably became pretty popular in the last couple of years but then that's been something that's been used for a long time in other sports and so um, I remember several years ago I started looking out into different uh, I guess more you know quote unquote sport coaching and it was pretty surprising how much stuff there was out there that kind of changed how I saw things as a, as a powerlifter or as a powerlifting coach. And I was just kind of wanting to get your feedback on uh, how your athletic background and how your exposure to all these different sports actually changed how you see things as a coach, uh, even though you're programming for powerlifters and it's a lot more specific, you know, what are some influences that kind of changed your perspective and your, your approach to, to coaching? Yeah, yeah. So of course, it, you know, you use the word specific in there, and specificity, scientific principle number one, is going to be what creates this framework around all your other decision-making processes. So being able to understand what the context of specificity really means for these different sports, which we define as developing the underlying systems of success in a given sport, is really important. So you know, powerlifting really is a extremely simple sport as uh, in comparison to training for like track and field or football or MMA, uh, because there's only one, really one quality you're trying to develop in these three uh, pretty simple tasks, squat, bench, and deadlift. Uh, so I think, you know, dealing with the coaching in the other sports, one got me exposed to just a much broader uh, pool of knowledge and, and sources of information much earlier. Uh, you know, I started coaching professionally, you know, in the sense of I got paid to coach uh, when I was 19 years old. I, I started coaching high school football and track then, and I was like super into West Side, um, and, but then also simultaneously into my own track and field training. So talking to sprint coaches and throws coaches, um, and because I was, you know, very good at the shot put, I got to be at these big meets with really well-known coaches so talking to guys who coach multiple olympians and and i'd always just really been into it uh, i started writing my own program at the start of high school when i was 14 years old uh, but never really had a coach we didn't have a strength coach at the high school or anything so i'd just be at these track meets and i'd talk to the coaches who i knew were good coaches who had a lot of good throwers and kind of tell them like you know I'm, I'm doing my own thing like what do you think about this what do you think about that and and i was never shy about pestering them uh, you know, with with questions and the same through the college recruiting process, getting to talk to to these different uh, coaches and, and just understand training, I think, from a more 
mm, holistic, you know, broad view, um, and and see that like, oh, okay, these track and field coaches have something to offer, you know, because this is similar about about the sports, and then these physical therapists have something to offer, and these weightlifting coaches have something to offer, rather than kind of getting myopic or, or pigeonholed into just powerlifting. But in terms of people who have been really big influences to me, as I, I mentioned, you know, I was really into Westside, uh, and even though I'm probably one of the more noted anti-Westside uh, people out there now, you know, I'd say that Louis Simmons had to be a, a, a big influence on me. Really, I mean, just, getting me passionate about it and, and the way that they, you know, he, even though I don't think they, he went about a lot of things the, the right way uh, in the context of powerlifting or sport training, um, you know, they were, he was trying to be critical in the way that, that he analyzed the training that they did. Um, you know, so that, that was big. Joe DeFranco was a huge influence early on for me, the biggest inspiration in starting Juggernaut. Uh, then I'd say the people who are probably making the biggest impact on my own coaching philosophies now are James Smith, uh, you, you may know as The Thinker, as a writer for Elite FTS. I'm not sure if he writes there at all. Uh, he's got his own company now, Global Sport Concepts. Uh, I had the good fortune to employ James for uh, about a year back in 2011 to 2012. Um, and that for me, as a guy with a degree in history, uh, was you know my master's and master's plus. Uh, James is just a, a super smart coach who, you know, he worked in like translating some Veroshansky texts and all that stuff. So all those books that people talk about, oh, you got to read Super Training, you got to read Science and Practice of Strength Training, and every coach says it, but um, like I'm very dubious of how many of them actually understand it, understand it, or understand how to practically apply it. Uh, but seeing James put into practice those ideas from Russian translated texts, uh, it all became a lot simpler to me because where the words on the page you know, are written in this very complex way, the output of the programs that he was creating were pretty simple and intuitive. And being able to sit and talk with him daily about why they were doing that helped me so much better understand that information as well as, uh, you know, so... I can through James, like Dr. Bondarchuk and all the specific or special strength stuff, really helpful through there as well as as the training from Charlie Francis, a infamous uh, Canadian sprint coach. Uh, it all became a lot simpler and more more intuitive uh, through my work with James. Uh, then Dr. Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization also been very helpful in uh, you know, really helping me take a lot of things that I was doing intuitively or through the work I'd, I'd done with James um, and just kind of create a more structured academic framework around it through scientific principles of strength training, you know, things that I was doing. And then he's like, oh, this is, you know, you're doing a really good job of phase potentiation. I was like, I didn't know that it's called that, but thank you. Yeah, and then being able to understand it it better and how to apply it to all these different people. So I'd say th those two are, were really big uh, on, on how I actually coach on the, you know, on the day to day now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny actually, because exactly what you uh, kind of pointed out with super training and a lot of Eric Shansky's work and Bonnerchuk, all, all that stuff. 
um, there are a lot of people who will say, oh, if you want to learn about this stuff, read these books. And so I, I read those books and I remember, I think that timing is pretty important. So I read them when I didn't really know a lot. And so I was like, okay, I understand what all these words mean in isolation, but then together I have no fucking clue what you're trying to say. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I went back several years later and read them again and I was like, oh, okay. And, and I'm sure that if I go back in another couple of years and read them again, then it's like, oh, you know, and it just keeps expanding. So it's like, I really don't think that a lot of those books are, are very accessible to most people unless you've got quite a bit of experience because even like, I mean, the term strength, right? Like if you, if you explain strength as a skill, most people, if you don't have like a decent amount of experience, won't really know what that means. And then you try and explain to them, they're like, okay, I kind of get it, but then they don't necessarily understand the broader implications of it. And then you look at a book like that, that's just very, very dense, or I guess those types of books, and they're very dense, and they do take a lot of practical experience to really understand, I guess, sort of the context that they're speaking in. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of funny because, yeah, I don't know. When people ask me like for books, I'm always like, RP books, your books, uh, Eric Helms books. I'm like, those ones are real simple. They're like really good, really accessible. And you get really, really good results from them. And that's a great starting point for me. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah. yeah, I really credit Dr. Mike uh, is extremely gifted in his ability to take complex information and deliver it in a way that's digestible without degrading the 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 real message behind it. Yeah, there's there's people who a lot of people they end up oversimplifying things and he simplifies things without taking away the true essence and nuance of, of what it's saying. And, and that's a, a very challenging thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, he he does a really good job of that um as well. And so actually it's funny because I was gonna ask you what type of resources uh and, and books and stuff like that you'd recommend, but um sounds like you already kind of gave quite a few so one of the things that i wanted to know as well actually is uh what what's like a particular area in sports science or maybe, maybe it's not necessarily even sports science but something that's related to like athletic performance i guess um that you find you're becoming more and more interested in uh, as of late yeah you know the the training that's kind of most fun and interesting for me to learn about is still definitely definitely the sport performance training and, and kind of re-conceptualizing what athleticism means. Um, you know, earlier in my career, you know, I've been, I said I started doing this when I was 19, I'm 36 now. I definitely only thought of like, uh, this guy's a great athlete because he can run fast and jump high and lift a lot. And even early in my strength and conditioning career with Juggernaut, you know, I'd have these football players and then also some MMA fighters and jiu-jitsu guys. And the MMA guys and jiu-jitsu guys, they couldn't run fast or jump high or, or lift a lot for the most part. So I, I always sort of considered them a little less than uh, on the athleticism side of things than football players and, and the guys who could do that stuff. And then, you know, particularly once I started training jiu-jitsu and, and then doing some like, you know, just for fun, striking, uh, training Muay Thai type of stuff, it really got me thinking like, man, the, the, these guys are extremely athletic. It's just different. And then as as you have these, even people in, in you know, mainstream sports like football, like a uh, guy like 
even though he's having a terrible year, I'll still use him as an example, like a Russell Wilson, you know, who can't, isn't that fast or that quick or anything or that explosive by by measurement with a stopwatch or a Vertec or a tape measure, but he's got, you know, this quote unquote, like innate ability of, of elusiveness and, and all that stuff. And understanding what that timing and rhythm and coordination and how that impacts true athletic success or, or, you know, Jerry Rice is a great example of this, Tim Brown, Chris Carter, guys who weren't four, four, 40 guys, but you watch them play or watch the highlights and like, well, no one's catching them. They look super fast um, and they play super fast because of this ability to anticipate what is going to happen through, you know, if you read like the sports gene and talk about the talk about vision and reaction and, and how reaction is a very low trainable quality. So it's not that, you know, great players in, in football and basketball and stuff are reacting to what they're seeing as much as they're predicting what they're going to see based on all the things that they've seen before and the ability to quickly visually process that and then kind of organize their body rapidly and, and make the adjustments needed to that situation. Uh, so guys who I see putting out a lot of cool information about that are like uh, Max Schmarzo, uh, Strong by Science, Stronger by Science. I always get his and Greg Knuckles yeah. Yeah, mi- mixed up. Uh, Corey Schlesinger is the strength coach for the Phoenix Suns. Uh, does a lot of cool stuff with that. All these different contract, relax exercises where he's kind of like dancing with the kettlebell. Uh, been, they both have a lot of cool stuff like that. Um, one of my great friends, Dustin Perry, is the strength coach for the 49ers. <laughs> Just the way that he has taken scientific principles of strength training and and, and used it for the football for his football players and creating the you know specificity. What does it mean to be specific for every position group, and then how? <clears throat> How do individual differences get applied within the 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 locker room there when you know for like juggernaut ai our our individual differences are going from you know 18 year old lightweight women to 40 year old super heavyweight men we've got 65 year olds using it and every you know lightweights heavyweight everyone in between but but within the context of of an nfl locker room it's like all right well all your offensive linemen they're all big you know they're all six three plus two ninety plus, but how do we fine tune things for a guy who's been in a league for ten years versus two years? For this guy who's pretty fast twitch versus this guy who's a bit slower? You know, for guys with this injury history versus that one. So yeah, seeing seeing the real detailed stuff of of uh, sport performance coaching is always something that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I also feel like once you get to that sort of more homogenous sample size, I guess, it becomes a little bit more tricky because there's way less levers to pull. You know, like if you have an athlete who's, like you said, a lightweight, who's, you know, pretty young and a female or whatever, versus someone who's maybe a little older and probably, let's say, 100, 120 kilos, you've got a lot of different levers that you can pull between the two of them. But then if everyone's just kind of the same, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, there's, there's definitely not as much stuff that you have to to kind of lean on, I guess. Yeah, the the nuance is a lot more, a lot smaller. 
and um it's also interesting and, and dustin and i will kind of joke about it how it that like it doesn't matter <laughs> as much i think you know the better the athletes get like like no one's going from nfl you know bench warmer to all pro because you put 50 pounds on their bench press like it's it's much more all right how do i do the weight room stuff the strength coach stuff enough without taking away from their technical tactical training with their position coaches the football coaches uh you know how do i support that stuff and not get just wrapped up in the way you see so many coaches do and more so at the high school and collegiate levels, hopefully, than the pro levels. Of I've got this many guys who bench 400 pounds and this many guys who squat 500 pounds, but you know, to get around that enough, it's rare to see that like the best weight room guy is also the best player. And understanding the real reasoning behind that, uh, why that is almost always the case, uh, I think is important to understanding what athleticism really is. Yeah, and that's that's getting a little out of my wheelhouse as well. I mean, I've coached a handful of people. That was also quite a while ago, and it's definitely not something that I'd be comfortable taking on. Anytime I get someone who reaches out to me, I'm like, I should probably talk to this person instead. Um, but uh, in, in terms of, I guess, if we kind of come back to uh, more strength training, I know one thing that you have kind of been known for, I guess, is, is your peaking strategies. and getting i think if i remember correctly you'd get like seven to ten percent or something like that um yeah for, for my own powerlifting career uh, i averaged about seven and a half percent higher in competition than than in training mm -hmm. so i've always gotten a fair bit out of my peak as well um like but i was wondering if you could kind of go over i guess your thought process of how you structure a peak uh in a, in a way where people can't well to kind of take it a step back a lot of the times people will um hit their biggest numbers in the gym and then they just kind of shit the bet on the platform or they just match it or they maybe they barely chip it and so what are some of uh the, the common mistakes you see when people are peaking and having those experiences um and then also what's your sort of thought process from like more of a principled approach to actually take an athlete to perform best on the platform when it actually matters most yeah so effective peaking starts before the peak starts before the peaking block before the taper uh it's got to be contextualized within the entire training cycle so i think the reasons that i was able to be successful in that was that i was doing a lot of volume earlier you know in general and, and strength blocks uh a lot of volume in those so I had a big reserve of volume to pull away from as I got into the peak to be able to decay fatigue uh, as I headed head into the meet. Uh, you know, if you're always training really high intensity and low volume, well, when you get to the peak, like how how do you peak if there's nothing to take away? You know, there's no if you've only been doing three work sets and like, okay, now I'm going to do two. I think that it's just not as big a change where early blocks, you know, I, I might be doing 16 sets of squats in a week. So, you know, I get down to, to peaking and, and then I maybe have five, five or six, uh, like overloading sets in a week. 
it's a really significant change. So there, that is also, you know, that to that same effect is I'm doing a lot of my training, probably carrying more fatigue. Uh, I was doing a lot of my training, carrying more fatigue than other people were because I was not concerned with lifting the most I could in the gym for Instagram video, a YouTube video or whatever. Uh, and I was, and I had a lot of trust in this process that I could do that and then perform well at meets. Um, so, so having that big reserve of volume training in a more fatigued state training in a more even keel. And this, this is a bit of personality differences for everyone I'd say, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty mellow, uh, and I'm trained by myself a lot of times as well. So having the arousal of trying to go crazy in the gym to hit this big number wasn't something I, I was wanting to do or was interested in doing. I was trying to kind of do the number I knew I needed to do in with the least fanfare possible because, you know, through my entire athletic career, going back to throwing the shot put, you know, if I threw 60 feet in practice, I knew I was going to throw 62 or 63 in the meet. And that wasn't even like a peaking situation. That was like, I could throw 60 on Thursday and 63 on Saturday type of thing week after week. Um, and so I, I kind of just, that was always my expectation. Like you do better in competitions than in practice. So when I started powerlifting, my first meet in 2010, the first meet that I'd ever been to, I did the juggernaut method as it was in the original book. And I just kind of expected to do that. I squad 765 in training, I squad 800 at the meet. Okay, that makes sense to me. Other people were surprised, I guess, by how that happened. So I think that's that's the other part of it is is I'm not I'm I'm saving extra adrenaline, arousal, whatever for the competition. Um so I, I think that those probably three things are the the biggest factors towards it. Um, you know, because if you don't train with that bigger volume early on and do so with the understanding if i tested my one rep max today it wouldn't be as high as i want it to be but i don't care because i don't need it to be that high like you you can't always be peaked you know and there's no surprise powerlifting meets it's not like you know powerlifting commissioners like tester max right now or you know world championship is is tomorrow so you better be ready now you don't have to be that we know what the meets are you get to plan it all uh so you know intentionally kind of digging down for a bigger foundation whatever you know so we can build a higher uh you know a higher skyscraper with it i think that's that's probably the most important idea to the effective peaking and trusting in that process that even though and i kind of feel like beat up in this in this phase of things it's going to be there when i need it it's going to be there when i need it um i think that that's that's really valuable so then as you get into the peaking and you're able to you know pull back some volume and pull back some volume you've got volume you've got that reserve to take away from and like each of those weeks you're going to feel better you're going to feel better and then as you get into the taper uh, i was taking like a two-week taper um but still being really active during that taper. I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make 
Um, you know, certainly when I started powerlifting and I was getting advice from more old school equipped powerlifters and they're like, no, just take the whole week off. Don't do anything. And then, and then I, I did that before and it wasn't, I still did fine, but, but I ended up feeling way better when I'd be doing the light sessions and technique session type of stuff and, and using that as like a visualization, deep practice, uh, as well as just getting the blood flow from that and, you know, kind of more being an athlete, like, you know, like football players, track guys, they don't sit on their ass for a week before, before a competition, they, you know, they train, but lighter, like strategically lighter. Um, so I think that's a big mistake that people make is, is they don't do enough work uh, and it doesn't have to be hard, but doing some work through that taper process is really significant. It's like, for me, real quick, like in the squat, going through so my career of meets 765 in training 800 in the meet 805 in training 865 in the meet 825 in training 905 in the meet um then i had a time kind of powerlifting and and strongman together then when i came back to just powerlifting this is post uh some herniated discs i think i went 825 in training 937 at that meet uh, I know I miss. I, I opened at that meet higher than the heaviest weight I had done, and I'd actually I'd missed. I want to say I'd missed 840 in that train cycle, and then opened at 838, uh, and then squat 937. Then the next one 863 in training, 959 in the meet, 915 in training, 970 in the meet, and then my last meet, I squatted 948 in training. And then uh, had like a muscle belly tear in my quad and a back down set from that. So I was not able to realize what I think would have been, you know, 1014 or something. Um, but yeah, so all pretty much with the exception of that last one uh, with the injury. Very, very significant <laughs> improvements uh, several times opening higher than what the heaviest weight I did in training was. And I, yeah, I think it was. Mostly that, you know, training with a lot of volume, training in relatively fatigued state, training calm, letting the adrenaline arousal be there at the meet, trusting this whole process. Um, I think th those are sort of, you know, bigger principle ideas that I could give people rather than like, oh, you want to reduce volume by this percentage type of thing is that's going to be maybe, uh, beyond the scope of, of what I could talk about here. But uh, if they want to read the program, powerlifting program design manual, yeah, they can check that out. No, I think that's great advice. And so um, volume is, is another one that uh, I guess I've kind of heard people talk about in a variety of different ways. But uh, one of the things that I've definitely noticed that I'm a huge proponent of now is just improving your general aerobic fitness so like whether it's going for walks a lot of people just usually get going for walks but if i have like someone who's quite advanced we need to really push their volume i'll usually get them doing some sort of conditioning uh, as well but uh, i was wondering if you could kind of touch on that in terms of actually helping people sort of progress to being able to tolerate enough of this sort of total volume uh, when you are in more of like hypertrophy block away so you kind of set that foundation establish a really wide base to eventually peak up to this this big new number. Yeah, the yeah, I think people they they skip the conditioning part because it's easy to make an excuse about like oh this isn't specific or whatever because it's hard or it's not fun to do is the the real reason they don't want to do it. But 
you know, it's it's not about the context of is this going to make you lift more tomorrow? It's is it going to allow you to do more training to be to stay healthier to to lift you know more over the long the long term. Um, so because very much in that short term, if you're doing nothing right now, if you just lift weights, you don't do do anything, and then you start walking 20 minutes a day, you know, for the first week, maybe, you know, it'd be like, you're going to get in a squat workout. Oh, my legs feel a little heavy or whatever. Yeah. After like a week, you're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. The, the more intense or, you know, a little bit more demanding things, if you're pushing the sled or doing the air bike or a rower or something like that might take a little bit longer to accommodate to, but it's not going to be too long. Uh, so, you know, having a, a very general off season type of phase where you're understanding, all right, I'm taking one step back to take two steps forward and handling more moderate weights that it doesn't matter if your legs feel a little bit heavy because you were riding the bike or, or whatever, uh, means that you, you like having that phase, I think is hugely important. That's one of the biggest mistakes of my own powerlifting career is not having planned dedicated off-season phases they became more unplanned because i try and go one meat cycle into the next and then i'd be like a month into it and be like uh everything hurts fuck this i'm never <laughs> lifting heavy again let me get back and do the the fun sport performance stuff fun for me type of more general training uh but if people can have that you know if you get up to doing maybe 30 minutes of some kind of cardio activity like a, i always really like the tempo type of stuff which is a track and field adaptation from charlie francis uh you know but for powerlifters i'll have them do it on the bike or uh pushing a sled going about 70 percent uh, maximum output for 30 to 40 second intervals and then taking the rest of that minute 20 to 30 seconds as a recovery and then doing another 30 to 40 second interval of like a low level calisthenic or a corrective exercise or abs. Um, so essentially I'll go 30, um, I, I do 45 on 15 off, but 45 on the air bike at, you know, about 350 Watts for me is that 70 ish percent output. Uh, easy enough. You can just go all out for a bit and then see what that is and then multiply it by 0.7 and know the pace you should go at. Um, so I'll go 45 seconds like that, 15 seconds to transition, then 45 seconds of like a side plank or something, 15 seconds to transition back to the bike, bike, abs, bike, you know, upper back correctives, bike, low back stability exercise, just back and forth like that for, you know, now because I'm, I'm not focused on powerlifting training for myself, I'll go like 30, 40 minutes like that for powerlifters you know 20 minutes would be would be great um you know the first week two weeks three weeks it might feel like man this is really hard you're going to adapt to it it's going to be fine once you've been having that in you know if you've been doing 30 minutes and then you get to your peaking block uh and you're oh should i still keep this in yeah it's fine just maybe take it down to 20 minutes like once you've been doing it it's not a hard thing if you're doing it properly to keep in your training that's just going to be a little bit tough in the introduction of it but i'd also encourage people there to think beyond the context of you know powerlifting meets and the 
you know, various swords and battle axes and, and cheap metals that you may be able to win there and think about uh, the broader context of living your life. Uh, you know, I say this as a super heavyweight powerlifter, uh, but that definitely became a realization for me in powerlifting. It was like, there's more life than lifting these pieces of metal attached to the other piece of metal. I want to, you know, live past 50. So. Yeah, I think um, you, you definitely alluded to quite a few different uh, protocols that are pretty simple to implement. And I think the one thing that uh, a lot of the times I hear people say is ex exactly what you said. They're just like, man, I just am so banged up. And I'm like, well, what'd you start doing? Like, well, I started doing some hit. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, why don't you just start with something simple like walking, you know? And then, and then maybe also not necessarily pairing the intervention to like what they're currently doing in their training as well. So, you know, they'll go for a run before they have like a heavy day on, on squats or something like that. It's like, okay, well maybe you shouldn't go for a run, especially if you haven't done it before. So maybe like just a simple walk on, on flat ground for like X amount of time. And then yeah. what your, what your baseline aerobic fitness is at, how many steps you're getting in a day and then kind of scaling from there instead of just assuming that, Oh, well, you know, the goal is to be 8,000 steps a day and I'm, so let's just get 8,000 steps. And it's like, okay, well you started at, like less than a thousand so maybe we shouldn't you know take like an 800 percent increase in you know work <laughs> right off the bat um, yeah, as sure. it sounds but i mean like for for a lot of people it is a kind of a big thing but um yeah no I, I think you brought up some really really great points especially for for building up the the fitness and kind of sustaining that into uh the peak as well i've definitely noticed that like since i since i've been walking everywhere and cycling and going for like regular hikes and stuff like that my recovery just even between sets is like drastically different. Like, I don't even mean like, oh yeah, I noticed a little bit different. It's like, I catch my breath way quicker. I'm not like sweating a bunch. I like, I can bounce back so much faster. It's it's like night and day difference. And so I completely agree with, uh, with. Yeah. I think underutilized thing for people too, especially in early phases or off season phases is being strict with themselves on timing the rest period. And it's not even that it has to be like really yeah. short, challenging time. Just use a you know use a stopwatch, and if you said it's going to be three minutes, make it three minutes, and you know stick to that, and then you know move quick between accessory stuff, and just make yourself huff and puff a little bit there. Like it's it's might make it you know in the very short term you're going to have to use five less pounds or whatever. But in the long term, you're going to be so much more fit. That's something that I've not really dealt with until early in my my second, third, and fourth powerlifting meets. Uh, Josh Bryant coached me, and he was big on that. Like, yeah, I do, strong? Uh, huh? Is that the jailhouse strong guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So we do like a top set of deadlifts, and then all these back down sets on like one minute rests. And the first day, and the first day it was the hardest workout I'd ever done, I'd ever imagined. I remember looking at it on the paper and like column. I was like, "Is this real? Like, you want me to do this? It was insane." I think I did like uh, maybe five eighty-five for a triple, then five oh or four ninety-five for six sets of four with one minute rest, and then deficit deadlifts, and then then bent over rows and shrugs and all this stuff. But the the six by four with one minute rest, you know, the first set, one minute rest, the next one, maybe 65 seconds. And then 
I, by the last two sets, I was just like, I'm resting three, four minutes. But I go through that whole training cycle, which was brutal, super hard, made an 85 pound deadlift PR, but then uh, came back to the next training cycle and one minute rest the whole way through with a little bit heavier weights, no problem. You know, like, like, yeah, you know, being strong, it's, it's hard work. You know, <laughs> like, like you, you gotta, you gotta push yourself there. And I think that that's a way to really effectively, you know, get some really specific work capacity built up. And then for me, when I switched to train strongman or competing in strongman, I'd done all these short rest period powerlifting stuff. So I go train with some, some guys who had just trained strongman and they're like, Oh, you know, this is going to be t- tough crossing over from powerlifting the conditioning. And I was like, we'll see, we'll see who it's tough for. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it had me really prepared there and you know, now I do jujitsu and all that stuff. So we do a lot of short, I do a lot of short rest period. I, I pretty much time all my rest periods, whether it's in what we call a bridge block is like this off season kind of plan that you use, or even just my normal training, I'll, I'll time everything. And, you know, I get past like three minutes on something. I was like, wow, this, this really seems like a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, honestly, I think a lot of the stuff that people sort of have adopted as these like foundational tenants of, of like strength training are more so based out of convenience a lot of times it's like cardio makes you weak or cardio does this or you know whatever or like high reps is not that great and i'm like well i don't know man all the old school power lifters are pretty damn huge and jacked so pretty sure they didn't just get that way doing like one to three reps at 85 percent. i mean maybe some of them did but most probably didn't yeah yeah Um, I, i always think and this is a total tangent that it's uh interesting about you know these older john reinhardt john cole um type of era 70s 1970s guys who had these really long-standing records and thinking about the bigger context of their lives it was probably a much more rural existence just in general everyone was living in more rural more manual labor type of life like you know, I grew up in the suburbs in Orange County, California. And my mom is from a farm uh, in Minas- northern Minnesota, a town of about 150 people. And my grandpa, like, well, he was strong as shit doing, doing farm work. And it's like, if you are, you know, a, and I don't know this specifically for Don Reinhout or John Cole or anyone, but let's say if you're a young Don Reinhout type and you're growing up on a on a farm or you have to, to walk, everywhere or you know just playing outside more or you know you're helping he's a little kid helping his dad with with whatever chores and manual labor type of work tasks and someone does that from you know you work two hours a day on the farm from eight to 18 and then you start lifting weights versus someone who just starts lifting weights when they're 18 after a relatively sedentary existence you can't get you can't catch up with that 10 years of, of general, uh, you know, GPP that they've, they've built there. So I think that that probably went a really long way for, for a lot of those older time guys in their, in their work, general work capacity. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that, that whole expression of like the farm boy strong type thing. Um, so, uh, 
one of the things that I wanted to, to, I guess, get your feedback on is I know you trained a lot on your own. And when I first started uh, strength training, I trained a lot on my own as well. And I got like pretty good results. But then I remember when I started training with like a crew <clears throat> who was a lot stronger than me, I remember the first day that I walked in, I saw someone, um, yeah, I walked into this new powerlifting club and it was like a private club. And I literally walked in and there was a guy facing me, like the door, unracking 805. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Like, I'd never seen that in real life, mm -hmm. you know? And I had been plateaued probably for like six months. And then after like, I think maybe one or two months of training there, I hit like a 50-pound PR on almost every lift. And I attribute a lot of that to just like seeing that stuff. And I mean probably also like just not pushing myself hard enough because I thought like I, I didn't recalibrate where my actual limits were. And so I wanted to kind of get your perspective on like how important is your training environment? And then if you are someone who trains from home because of work constraints or whatever it might be, how can you make sure that you're actually getting to a high enough output, um, and you're not sort of like shortchanging yourself because you can still be making, you know, some progress, but you know, when you go in and someone actually sees that and they're like, that's not an RP eight, you know, you need to add like another 30, 40 pounds and they're doing that every single day. So yeah, if you could just kind of touch on that, that'd be great. Yeah. So, you know, part of what you were saying there is kind of like the, the perception of what is good or what is possible. Uh, I think that's has been a significant thing, you know, whether it's a four minute mile, uh, more in the strength context of, of things like the first 400 pound log press in, in strongman, all these guys were bumping up against it. And then one dude did it. And then it was like, you know, two months later, 10 guys had done it. They didn't all of a sudden get that much stronger. Uh, or even for myself and strongman, particularly, uh, I remember my second contest I'd been doing strongman for five weeks at this point was I had a 975 yoke and I, I've been watching all these older world's strongest man. And, and I think it was a fortissimus show uh, was like the first time they'd done 900 pound yoke. And this was maybe five years before this contest I was doing. And I'm watching Sedrunas Sificus, you know, three steps drop, two steps drop. And I'm like, and I'm supposed to do more than this, more than Sificus. And I went 975 for, for 25 meters or whatever it was, no drops. And it, I think it was just really the expectation, like, well, this is the weight you have to do. This is the contest, so do it. You know, that 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 does have a that once seeing stuff like that, and as it changes your perception of what you can do, what's possible, can be really significant. You know, the internet has broken down a lot of those barriers, and I think that that's why you see this, this huge acceleration in the the best lifts, the deadlift uh, more so than than anything. Uh, you know, where 2015, you know, a 900 pound deadlift was, you were, you know, breaking American records, doing that kind of stuff. And now not that much past that, it, you know, it's thousand and thousand plus and guys are doing 500 kilos and training and all this stuff. Um, you know, so, so I think that that perception issue, as long as you are willing to seek out uh that information online and see uh, these people are doing that so it's possible to be done um maybe negates some of the need to walk in and 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 to a gym with stronger people and and see how much stronger they are like if 
someone wants to live in denial and not go on open powerlifting and not see that how much stronger people are in their weight class or they want to make whatever excuses about genetics or drugs or whatever of why it's happening well that person's not going to be very strong anyways uh so then you know then it so once the perception is aside because you can understand what is possible from seeing it uh online then it becomes a thing of of are you pushing yourself hard enough um you know in terms of a rpe rating like a, that single small uh context just like one set yeah i mean that's something that probably like an online coach or whatever can help with or you know different groups and and all that uh being discerning about who you're listening to is is significant certainly um you know for me i i said i, I pretty much always trained by myself in starting back in high school training for football and track like i wrote my my own program my whole life uh with the exception of, of josh coaching me for those couple of meets and a little bit of college strength and conditioning coach my first two years of school but people would come and they train for a little bit and they'd fall off and you know that that was it and that was it even in the training strongman a lot of times so i was trained trained by myself i i just Kind of was able to look at well this is what you did before and now we're gonna do five pounds more or ten pounds more than the last time around or one set more um so i was always kind of focused inward in that that regard um you know advice i guess that i'd have for for people who need to who want to be successful in, in training by themselves is you know at the end of the day like you're doing all this stuff for yourself it's not for you know to impress your training partners or to impress the internet so if you can do it to a standard that you're proud of and that you feel like you're really that you've challenged yourself uh and can continue doing that then it's going to be something you're able to be successful with um not everyone will be able to be successful probably training by themselves but you know, I guess you kind of just got to figure out if if you're that person who can do it or not. Like, I never really trained. Uh, yeah, I never really trained with a group here, here or there. But it is it's it's easier to train hard with a, a group and you're all pushing each other. But there's different dynamics that come in with that uh, as well that I think can be negative in in some regards of you know going he heavier than you're supposed to in certain situations and and not working within the context of the plan or doing more ego uh type of things or and that all depends on the group that you're with too because you could be getting great feedback from people but if you have the opportunity to, to get around people more experienced than you even if it's not all the time you know it's gonna be worth it uh worth it from time to time to to get that but you know end of the day you're doing it because you want to do it so hold yourself accountable for it the, the injury thing's a really good point because even here at the gym we got this new um treadmill i can't remember what they're called but it's kind of like the u-shaped ones mm -hmm. that are self-propelling yeah. so uh we got them and i was like oh this is really awesome because now i could do my steps inside and i don't have to walk when it's like sleet and ice and all this stuff right uh to, to get my step count in and one of the guys was like oh let's see who can hit like max max speed or whatever and i was <laughs> like so he's doing it and he's like oh why don't you do it, you pussy and i'm like Look, you can call me whatever you want. I was like, I, I haven't like ran in a long time and I haven't sprinted in years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna fucking sprint and like 
blow out my quad or my my hamstring or something like that because you're teasing me and he like he kept bugging me and i was like oh whatever i don't care do whatever you want and then a, a couple other people jumped on and did it and then sure enough he ended up hurting his adductor and i was like i told you i was like this is exactly the reason why i didn't want to do it it's just it's not worth the risk you know and so like those little things like that definitely can get you if you're not like um i don't know if you don't have your priorities straight sometimes but <laughs> yeah um, so yeah, we are coming up to that, to, to that effect real quick I, I think some sometimes people only take the the you know the idea of working hard as or working as hard as they can as the context of doing as much as they can but there's a lot of times where working hard is really more about the discipline of doing what you are supposed to do what you need to do and sometimes that means doing less you know not yeah, i mean sticking to the plan it means doing the things that aren't you know fun like 10 extra pounds on the bar or an extra set or something but the discipline of of getting the most out of less sets you know but by being better focused and all that kind of stuff or or the recovery uh things around around that going to bed earlier you know eating the right stuff all that so that's an important thing for people to understand too that working working the hardest doesn't always mean doing the most yeah 100 percent. so we are coming up on that hour mark and um uh let's see where where can people find you yeah so find me at chad wilson smith is my personal instagram at juggernaut training uh juggernaut training systems youtube jtsstrength.com juggernautai.app uh also at juggernautai.app uh, instagram for just that find the juggernaut ai app in the app store google play store but we prefer if you sign up through the website so we don't have to pay apple or google anymore than we already do um yeah so all of, all of those places awesome so i'll also link those two books um in uh in the comment section, or sorry, not in the comment, in the show notes. So all of that stuff, the Instagram, the website, Juggernaut AI, and the books are going to be in the show notes. Make sure you go give him and Juggernaut a uh, follow. Puts out a lot of great stuff on a regular basis and just has a ton of content uh, on YouTube as well, which actually I'll probably put that as well, um, that you guys can check out. So Chad, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was really great uh, chatting. Cool. My pleasure, Daniel.